0: Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, my name is Nico. I'm an integrated thoracic surgery resident from the Cleveland Clinic and I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Fuller from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Fuller holds the Thomas Bray Endowed Chair in Pediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery, Professor of Clinical Surgery at the Perriman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. In addition to this and other leadership positions, she is also the Chair of the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association Executive Committee for Congenital Cardiac Fellowship. She is here to discuss the current ACGME congenital cardiac surgery training paradigm and the upcoming changes to the fellowship. So, Dr. Fuller, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. So, let's just kind of uh, talk a little bit about the current state of the ACGME fellowship. So, what are the different pa- training pathways to become a congenital cardiac surgeon?
1: Yeah. So, there have been a lot of substantial changes, really, over the last two decades in in training. I think uh, you know, congenital cardiac surgery used to be more of an apprenticeship. So it was the type of training where you know a, a fellow who was interested in congenital would call a cardiac surgeon who was a practicing congenital heart surgeon and say, hey, I wanna spend some extra time with you and get some expertise in this area. And it was for a not necessarily designated period of time, some of these, you know, mentorships extended for six months, some a year, some several years. And um, in the true sense, it was it was a craft that had an apprenticeship, um, so to speak. It was only in 2008 where the ACGME and the ABTS introduced a certification for congenital heart surgery, and along with that certification was a formalized training program. And the formalized training program up until now has been one year, 12 consecutive months of formal training at an ACGME certified um, training program. So that's a program that's applied to the ACGME in order to be recognized as training fellows who can sit for the certification through the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. Um, And right now there's several different pathways to get there. So obviously there's the traditional pathway, um, fellows who complete kind of a general surgery slash adult cardiac surgery or even vascular surgery slash adult cardiac surgery. And then there's the more integrated programs, which are your 4-3 or your I-6 programs. And fellows can apply out of either one of those pathways to become uh, candidates for the congenital certification and be in a formalized ACGME-recognized training program.
0: Great. And so, you know, as the chair of the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association um, uh, Executive Committee for the uh, the fellowship, what what is the real mission statement of our current training, or well, what is it that the training is trying to accomplish?
1: So the the training basically, uh, and it, it's kind of interesting. I think it's good to have like a little bit of context here because there's several organizations involved in training any fellow um the the first organization that's really kind of the principal organization is that certifying organization in our case the american board of thoracic surgery Um, not any different from necessarily any other board, such as the ABIM for internal medicine and subspecialties or uh, the American Board of Surgery for those of us who did general surgery training. So realistically, the requirements for training in terms of the case numbers and the duration of training is determined by the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. And that happens to be a board that's composed of both adult cardiac, thoracic, and congenital surgeons um, of that group. Um, They meet several times a year um, and review basically the number of training programs available, how the training has been, what the job availability is for those residents. And most importantly, they really determine what they feel is necessary to establish competency. And that's how, you know, the ABTS works to develop not only case requirements, but also in our case, a written component for the boards and also an oral component or a certifying exam. So the ABTS then, once they generate their requirements, that's then shared with the ACGME. Now, the ACGME doesn't necessarily designate what programs require, but they do stamp programs as in, yes, you meet all the requirements and the satisfactions that prove to us that you are capable of running a training program, meaning you have a sufficient number of cases in order to train fellows. You have sufficient faculty that's adequately trained and board certified in order to properly do that training. Um, If you have a fellowship, you're not competing with the residency in terms of how many cases the residents do compared to the fellows. And there's a number of factors that go into it. Um, Obviously, kind of academic opportunities, research opportunities, in addition to case volume, Um, making sure that we touch on all the points of kind of professionalism that go along with, you know, practicing medicine. Those are still ACGME requirements. And the ACGME importantly develops milestones, which are how residents are graded throughout their kind of residency or their fellowship. So just like there are milestones for General surgery and adult cardiac surgery, there are specific milestones developed for congenital cardiac surgery. And each of the programs is evaluated by the ACGME. So it's kind of the governing board for programs. However, the requirements to sit for the board are not determined by the ACGME. Those are determined by the ABTS. So um, any program can apply to become an ACGME-certified program. Um, There's no limit in terms of the number of programs that we have, however, all those programs must meet the requirements stipulated by the ACGME in order to be a training program. At the TSDA level, we basically function, and, and my position has been essentially to serve kind of as a liaison between those groups for program directors, and also as somebody who's able to inform program directors of you know any changes that take place at the ABTS, at the ACGME, and then of course, kind of keep our fingers on the pulse in terms of what our requirements are as program directors and our obligation to the match, um, which we use SF Match now as our cert- as our, you know, I guess it's it's our formalized match program similar to ERAS. And then also to kind of keep our fingers on the pulse in terms of any issues, concerns, resident issues in terms of training, uh, program director issues, changes in terms of who leads those training programs, et cetera. So some of it is managing a little bit of, of kind of human resources across our nation in terms of who the training programs are. Uh, the nice thing is I have a lot of interaction with uh, folks from both the adult and the integrated programs. So it helps to kind of maintain uh, current knowledge of what's going on nationally in training programs. And, and it's been particularly important during this time of COVID where the TSDA has really focused a lot on making sure that we make interviews safe, that we make um, applications easy and feasible for the residents to training programs and that we carefully monitor how the training programs are doing it's a lot of it's a great platform to share knowledge amongst program directors
0: absolutely so what do you think is the are the strengths of the current training paradigm and what do you think is lacking
1: Really great question. So um, I, I kind of will answer this question in terms of what my personal thoughts are, as opposed to kind of what what is, uh, you know, the thoughts of the TSDA per se. And I I personally think that there are a number of really great case requirements, but in general, across the board, I think one of the challenges of training residents in a technical specialty is while you have case requirements, it doesn't really stipulate how much of that case you're doing or how much of the case, you know, you develop and make a plan for. So, I mean, ideally, training mimics practice. And it's it's something that's done with increasing responsibility throughout your training program. So realistically, by the end of training, you should be able to function as attending. That, makes, that means that you should be able to do operations, not necessarily completely independently, but with help. And certainly you should be able to develop a, a plan for doing those programs. I, I think in congenital, it's a little bit different from the standpoint of you're not going to hang a shingle and do complex stat level five cases as soon as you finish. But hopefully you're going to have the wherewithal to put together a plan for a complex patient, understand that we function in a very multidisciplinary format, ask for help, ask for opinions, and really be able to uh, do even moderately complex or complex cases, but with some backup and with some help. And I think in general, congenital, much like many of the complex adult specialties, really require some mentorship as you begin your career. I think one of the other changes I'd like to see is just with the increase in, um, Adult uh, congenital heart patients. I'd like to see personally a case requirement for reoper- complex reoperative adult congenital cases because I think right. right now that's that's one area that we lack in terms of the ABTS case requirements. But again, those right. those are explicitly my thoughts, not necessarily reflective of my colleagues.
0: Sure, sure. sure. The asterisks. Um, so <laughs> speaking of changes, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the changes that are upcoming to the uh, to the fellowship. So. Um, do you think you can summarize, maybe in a couple sentences, what what uh, the uh, applying fellows should expect in the next couple years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, uh, mandated by the ABTS, uh, we will be transitioning to a mandatory two-year training program. Um, both both years have case requirements. I, I'm not completely sure that the case requirements have been totally uh, set in stone at this point, but uh, my understanding is the concept is that, you know, the second year will lean more towards the stat four and five cases as opposed to the first year. Um, But the idea is that that residents themselves get a wide exposure to patients, that they get um, plenty of time to hone their operative skills. And in fact, many programs currently use a two-year model in which only 12 consecutive months count. Um, in this case, it's it's 75 cases within that 12-month period, and there are specific requirements you could see on the ABTS website. I think for the two-year program, it's going to be 75 cases each year with a kind of leaning towards more complex cases during your second year. So this is going to be the first time that's a mandated two-year program I think that potentially has advantages as well as disadvantages. Um, Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it does lengthen the training time, which can make it challenging for um, fellows who have already completed, in some cases, eight years of both research and clinical residency. So... um, while the I-6 was ideally going to get us away from such a long training period, we're kind of re-emerging into what is virtually a decade of training if you're going to be a congenital heart surgeon. And that's a little heartbreaking, I think.
0: Sure. So, yeah, you touched you touched a little bit about, you know, my next question on whether you think a two-year fellowship may deter, you know, applicants because of an even longer training period. but you know, I guess to spin a positive light on it, what, what do you think are the major advantages that uh, um, a fellow can get by just having another year of experience?
1: Yeah, I I think those are great questions and I think this is something that we're really going to have to look at very carefully as we implement the two-year programs and try to think very prospectively in terms of what are the advantages and and how are we benefiting the residents. That's really, I think, what should be the goal of not only the ABTS but also the ACGME and the TSDA is that everything that we do is intentionally created to facilitate training and, and make better surgeons. So ideally, this will allow for surgeons to get more operative experience and to perform those complex cases. If you think about it, a year training program can be a relatively short time where, you know, typically there's, a month or two of the kind of getting to know you phase and you start with kind of increasing gradually complex experience so hopefully over a two year period it gives you plenty of time during that second year to really perform some of the more complex cases. I think again mm-hmm. it varies incredibly by center what resident experiences the number of cases that you do and the variety of cases you do tends to vary but certainly this should advantage the residents.
0: Sure. So. Uh, What role do you think the institution plays in terms of training beyond the two years? You know, I know uh, ACGME fellows are locked in for two years at a certain institution coming up, but um, do you think that an institution has a bigger role to play in trying to develop uh, the fellow after their two-year fellowship is done?
1: Yeah, that's a a really great question. I think it actually, um, the development of surgeons once they finish their formal training, There has to be a lot of forethought into what is the plan for that resident once they finish in terms of how are we going to set up residents with great jobs that we know provide them with ample opportunity, but with good mentorship. You know, if you think traditionally of the congenital heart surgery, you know, the practice in general has been one of three pathways. Either you wind up somewhere where, you know, you don't have the great mentorship and you don't get an opportunity to excel out of the Stat level one and two cases and if years go by where you're not performing the complex cases it can be difficult to kind of get back into that practice of the complex neonates for example or um, some residents have the exact opposite experience where they would go somewhere and they would try to do complex cases independently without having proper mentorship which uh, surely can be very challenging um, and so it's 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 really quite difficult to wind up just in the right spot where there's a tremendous degree of commitment to a junior surgeon in terms of what their operative experience is gonna be, how much independence and autonomy they get to practice in terms of their decision-making and their surgical skill, and also increasing complexity so that when they come out of residency, assuming they're doing the most operating that they'll do as a senior resident, that they don't lose that skill during their first couple of years of practice. Um, I think hopefully this provides us an opportunity to have residents coming out highly technically trained, um, so with really great technical skills, but also gives us the opportunity over two years to kind of really try to find a, a secure job for them where they have the right type of mentorship. And I think a lot of that is very dependent, you know, on the residency programs traditionally we don't have a lot of control over the job market in congenital and that certainly has been a big concern for residents in training is what kind of a job am i going to get once i finish or am i going to have a job once i finish so finding that right job and continuing to kind of communicate with residents once they finish training is a very important part of our role as program directors
0: right so you know you kind of touched on my next question Uh, what would you say to a current or prospective fellow is concerned about the availability availability of jobs after you know an additional two years of fellowship?
1: Yeah, I think it, I, I get this question a lot, and I think it really comes down to doing what you love. You know, if this is something that you're passionate about, you really have to be passionate about it. Um, then you know, you you try and the worst that happens is you don't wind up in the perfect job, first crack out of the box, but you wind up in a good place. You might have to make some compromises along the line, meaning you're somebody who comes out, but you're highly marketable in the sense that you've had a lot of good heart failure and bad experience. That's, that's a really sought after quality in congenital heart surgery. Or you're somebody who really enjoys congenital heart surgery but you also love adults and you want to market yourself as somebody who does also adult congenital another booming area of congenital heart surgery so i think there are some good opportunities out there and you really Mm -hmm. have to think of yourself in terms of how you're going to mold yourself and sub-specialize even within the world of congenital heart surgery but the, the primary goal is do what you love. No matter what you're doing, you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. So if you're equally happy being a complex aortic surgeon as you are a congenital heart surgeon and there's a lot more job availability in aorta, you might want to consider, hey, I don't want to lose my wire skills. I don't want to lose the ability to do percutaneous valves. You know, right. really, really take a close look and and. Um, I always recommend to the residents that's really good to kind of keep an on running list like in your computer, on your desktop or. You know a notebook of like what you really loved and what are the cases you really loved and then you can go back and look at that and you might be surprised that what you really liked wasn't at all what you thought um but it's nice to kind of not only take notes on our cases for the purpose of learning technical aspects or judgment decisions but also try not to lose focus of what it brings to you and what kind of value it brings to you as a surgeon i think that's one one part that's important to keep track of
0: yeah those are great suggestions so, you know I, it sounds like there are different governing bodies that that kind of dictate how our fellowship or this ACGME fellowship is going to move forward. Do you think there's room for growth in the number of fellowships?
1: Absolutely, and we've seen it just over the last couple of years. So currently, there's fifteen training programs. Um, I know of uh, can't can't mention their names, but at least two other uh, university hospital systems that are looking at forming congenital heart training programs. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, I think there's going to be an increased number of programs. What's going to be interesting is, um, you know, there's really no mandate on us in terms of how we want to run a two-year program. So, for example, some programs might choose to take a fellow every year and have a senior and a junior fellow, whereas other programs might say, hey, we're only going to take one two-year fellow every two years so we're not going to have more than one fellow overlap and we're going to have the same fellow here for two years and when they're done we'll take another one so if you look at this past year for example through our match that was just finished about three weeks ago um, there were 12 programs who applied through the match this year who who were available through the match this year and and of the programs available not everybody participated in the match and that's going to be the same case I think when we have two-year programs programs really need to decide if they want to Two concurrent fellows or one fellow every two years. So, whereas you might have 12 programs, you might go down to having six or eight programs depending on what model they choose. And that's really up to the institutions. Um, Together with that, I think there's going to be a highly variable amount of applicants. So it'll be interesting to see. And and I'm hoping we certainly have as many training programs as there are applicants to the training programs. That's the ideal situation is to have those equally matched. so Everyone who applies winds up in a training program. Um, But time will tell.
0: Perfect. And then, um, just a couple last-minute questions. Uh, What direction do you think the specialty is going to go in in the next 10 years?
1: You know, I I think what we've seen so far is an increase in those kind of sub-sub-specialty areas, like I mentioned, Um, heart failure. VAD, innovative devices for pediatric patients, and then, of course, looking at patients with adult congenital heart disease. Um, I I, I hesitate to say we plateaued in terms of what the interventional work is. Um, You know, we clearly don't do as many ASDs, as many PDAs as we used to. Ductal stents have been huge in terms of taking some of the the shunt volume um, and and the, the patients in need of increased pulmonary blood flow as neonates. However, I don't see us really disappearing. Um, kids are still born with congenital heart disease. The incidence has not changed. And in that way, we have uh, you know, a significant amount of job security here. Um, I think across the board, the future is very bright for cardiac and thoracic surgery in general. So um, hopefully we will be in a place where you know, I think more people are interested in research, they're more interested in funding research at a time where the funding is less available. But I think in some ways, it's really producing some top quality research, which is important.
0: Right. And, you know, do you have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to share to any of the listeners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like in some ways I'm kind of a poster child for congenital heart surgery in the sense that I can't imagine anything more fulfilling to do. Um, we have hard days, uh, and it's very challenging. I think when you're dealing with patients as well as their families, um, parent parents, um, it's almost like you're treating more than one person at the same time. And the same same can be right. said for adult cardiac surgery, but there's an intensity when it comes to the pediatric patients that I think it, is uh, hard hard to describe. It's almost intangible. Um, I think in a sense that people who are interested in it, we need good, well-trained congenital heart surgeons. And I think if you are interested in it, there's nothing that should deter you from doing it.
0: Perfect. Well, uh, Dr. Fuller, again, thank you for your time. I know you're, you're you're busy. So, uh, thank you. And, uh, we hope all the listeners, uh, enjoy this.
1: Great. Thank you so much.